Hi, this is Jeanette Creamore, or you may know me as JC. Welcome to Laugh, Learn, Lead, a podcast show that helps project sponsors, project managers, and their teams shape their project success stories. I'll be sharing interviews that bring a different perspective to what project success looks and feels like, as well as unpacking our conversations to provide insights and practical tips. Stay tuned and enjoy. Hi, listeners. Welcome to part B of my conversation with Sam Higgins. Last episode, we talked about his career journey starting as a second generation IT and what excites him about technology. Today, we will continue talking about the key problems facing organisations, the lessons from a change in program sponsorship, and what is a good project manager. There's some big challenges organisations are tackling at the moment and potentially in the future. Is there a one or two that are kind of dominant at the moment that you're really seeing common across industry or is there not? Yeah, look, there's two, I think there's two dimensions to that question. The first one is to the discussion you and I had earlier, which is that there are perennial problems. So there is just the challenge of, you know, day in, day out, executing change in the form of projects to move organisations forward um, and and those challenges are, can be pretty common. You know, I'm, I'm often surprised at how often I can go into situations and, and find the same things going on, you know, lack of portfolio management, lack of linking of strategy through to, um, you know, through to operations and through to outcomes and projects. Um, you know, a lack of clarity around planning. You know, um, I've got a piece of research that I call the three dimensions of IT planning. You know, that people forget that that an IT organisation needs a business plan for its organisation, you know, um, how it's going to price, how it's going to market itself, how it's going to structure itself, its services that it will or won't deliver, how it will deliver those, you know, is it going to in-source, outsource, offshore, nearshore, cloud, hybrid cloud, whatever the combination might be, versus technology strategies. You know, am I, am I or am I not going to apply artificial intelligence? And if so, what flavour of AI am I going to apply? You know, and how is that different between me and some other industry? And when am I willing to do that? Do I want to be bleeding edge, fast follower, whatever it might be? And then finally, the, the, the plan around the program of work, what projects is uh, technology projects are being delivered, um, you know, and are they... Are they in alignment with the business plan for the IT organisation or should they be given to somebody else to do because it's not part, you know, that's not the business of IT that we're in. And that might mean letting the business do some shadow IT in some cases. And how do they apply those strategies to it? So that that triad of planning to me is a perennial problem that organisations just struggle with and don't do well. I'm, um, I'm feeling it, Sam, because, uh, yeah. yeah, I've, developed the project ecosystem model and it talks about strategy to operations and there's one bit of evidence that I look for and that's um, can we align to something because at the moment it just looks mm. sounds like a good idea and it's probably yeah. not. Mm. Yeah, that's right. So then um, so the other the other really interesting challenge I think and it's one uh, it's it's the people I think it's the people challenge around um, around the complexity of um, 
the complexity of technology today. I had a really interesting chat to Tim Whiteley, who's the head of applications development at Westpac this week for a piece of research that I'm doing around autonomous technologies or AI-enabled technologies. Um, you know, and Tim made a really good point about, you know, in all in all of this great stuff that we've got access to now, so all of that, you know, all of this magic that we can do, um, we should never lose sight of the fact that we're actually making things really, really complicated for people and that at some point people won't be able to keep up with the complexity, you know. We, we are probably not in a position where we can evolve fast enough to keep up with the complexity that we're, that we're actually able to create having reached this point in our evolution as a species. Mm. And, you know, and so that was really interesting challenge. And um, there's a, a guy, a futurist called Peter Niston. Pretty sure it's Peter Niston. I'll, I'll, I'll name check that for you. Jeanette, mm. I'll give you a link to, to his website. Okay. Um, he wrote a really great book about digital disruption long before it was um, long before it was trendy, and 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 he's since moved on to a really interesting space around what if we what if we enabled people inside the workforce the same way that we enable customers through marketing. You know, we, we've we've had to develop things like recommendation engines and we've had to develop things like digital twins and, you know, and multi-channel marketing and tracking what customers do and trying to understand their behaviour so as to offer them the most personalised service we can. And we've done that because customers have said, you know what, it's too hard. It's all too hard, right? Oh, it's too much complexity. I need you, the, the, the vendor, to take responsibility of helping me navigate the complexity, you know, and Amazon is obviously the conscious one of that, right? The, the, mm. the general store of everything. Yeah, yeah. And Peter's Peter's started to do research that says, well, you know, if 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 customers find it hard and complex, how how are poor employees supposed to cope yeah. inside the machine? So where is the support for them? Where are, where are all the new solutions for them? You know, where is the, you know where is the digital marketing engine that sits underneath an employee every day and says, hey, Sam, you know, uh, based based on your role and based on the task that I think I'm seeing you do, here's a bunch of recommendations about information that might help or people that can assist right, and things like that. So, you know, he's, he's envisaging this new world of HR that isn't enabled by an ERP or HR system, but, you know, is the equivalent of, you know, integrated marketing and, uh, and that sort of technology, digital marketing technologies that sit on top of a CRM. He's envisioning a whole layer of new technology and enablement of employees in that space, you know, and I think that's a real challenge for, for organisations is how do you, how do we make work simple or how do we assist and augment people's work activities so that they feel satisfied and so that it's not hard and they don't feel overwhelmed and the complexity and rate of change, which, look, to be honest, I I, I hate it when people say, oh, you know, change is constant and change is happening all the time. It's like, yeah, okay. So Mm. if it's constant, it's happening all the time and then let's stop talking about it and let's actually deal with the problem. And, And Peter's sort of suggesting that 
that that's a problem to be solved. And I just have this funny feeling that when we're introducing things like AI and machine learning, that no doubt will assist with that. They will bring with it a lot of complexity that will, you know, if we're not careful, will break people. Yeah. And so I think that's actually the biggest, if I was to say what's the, you know, ignore climate change or, you know, um, um, or climate sustainability, what's the next existential threat um, to us as people? I think it's the nature of work, mm. how we do work um, and, and technology's role in that, you know, and you've, I've seen interesting research over the last sort of few years talking about, you know, have, have we got to the point where we've reached peak productivity and now we're actually eroding productivity. So we, we've, we've entered a period of diminishing returns as a result of some of the technology we're applying. Love that. And I'm actually gone to a science fiction book. I think I've just written one in my head as you were talking about, you know, personalise my experience on the on a day at work. So when I log on, good morning, Jeanette. Um, it looks like you've got three meetings today. And by the way, these are your um, documents that people have actually prepared for you. You're now ready to read, you know, just present it to yeah. me that personalised and someone's already done the filtering of the right. thousands of emails that they expect you to read, but they're actually not relevant. So, yeah, I just went into that science fiction mm. magic thinking when you were talking then. So, um, yeah. Yeah. And, so, yeah. And, you know, and like, and like digital marketing, you know, these things have a, a light and a dark side, right? You know, all good, all, all good stories have a light and a dark. Um, and, you know, on one hand it's, you know, it's making people's lives less stressful. They can be more mindful about the work that they're about to do. The flip side is that people will then worry that, you know, Big Brother is watching, you know. And oh. so for many people that, that operate Office 365, you know, um, if you want to see a little bit of this sort of in action, you'll see things like the new Insights button that's available in Outlook. You'll see the new um, Delve is one of the features online um, that Microsoft provide. Delve basically renders up documents and says, well, you know, here's a bunch of things that all of your colleagues in your team all seem to be working on and all seem to have opened a lot. So maybe it's important to you that you have a look at that. So there are examples where Microsoft yep. themselves have started to embed some of this this thinking, right? The, the flip side is if, if the insights are giving you statistics that said, you know, you were sitting in a meeting and spent half the time surfing the net and looking at email, mm. the, the, the dark side is, you know, will employers use that to, to sort of, you know, performance manage people? Mm. And that's, so that's the flip side. Everyone thinks that I have a crush on you and I said I have a <laughs> I have an intelligent crush on Sam. Yeah. I learned, so, but yeah. Also, but, but it's also, you know, my experience, Jeanette, is when you have worked with people on lots of different things over time and you know each other's strengths, you know, that's, that's the thing. Yeah. I think that, that, mm. that makes makes you excited to work with people, you know, and, and I've said the same thing to people, you know, whenever someone says, oh, you know, I've got a project that's going pear-shaped or, you know, who can I talk to about project stuff? You're always the first person that comes to my mind. Mm, thank you. And if you want it sorted, you're going to need to speak to Jeanette. <laughs> very few people that will be able to save you now. This has gone too far. You've gone too far. Uh, yeah, stop. <laughs> but, uh, that's right. So let's, that's the next question then. So, um, Sam, you and I have seen many projects succeed and fail, and we've talked about mm. some, but what's something yep. you believe we could be doing better? So I, I have a confession to make. 
Mm-hmm. I I assisted um, recently in a significant business case development, so piece of strategy work through to a business case. Um, the business case was signed off by a board, having been endorsed by the CEO, the leadership team, um, with comments like, um, and again, this was a team effort, so this is in this in the context of the, a team of people working together to pull together a strategy over nearly 18 months um, in an organisation that hadn't done a lot of strategy for a long, long time and had been in a very placid business-as-usual mode of operation for almost five years, so no, no effective change and realising that they were facing into some pretty tough headwinds industrially and needed to do something very different. Um, and having spent or spun their wheels in two other financial year cycles, putting business cases up that, that had no strategic alignment, no story to tell, no business benefits. Um, the CFO described it as, you know, the, the best business case you'd ever seen. The CEO echoed those comments. Um, the program started. I assisted the program team getting up and running. Um, you know, we we went out to to pick the best project managers, the best program managers we could find. You know, people people that were referred to quite senior people that had done this before, and it was all good. Um, and a year later, that program has delivered nothing. Has wasted over fifteen percent of its budget and delivered nothing and has been cut down and recast so that it is nothing more than a shadow and a poor shell of what was originally set out in the strategy. Mm. Sounds familiar. And, and I, you know, and I, and, and having been involved in that entire process, I have asked myself on more than one occasion, what did I do wrong or what did we miss? And so, and it's, look, it's a hard, it's a hard pill to swallow, right? Because when you get a board to give you money and to put this in context, we, we got, we convinced the board to give us in the first year, almost 75% of what had been the previous year's total project portfolio for that organisation for one division. So we, we, the result of that was that they doubled their project portfolio to allow that division to get its extra cash. Um, but, you know, it was a big ask, big, big ask, big reputational ask by, by all involved. Mm. And as an advisor, as, as, a, as someone coming in purporting to be an expert and to be providing guidance, you know, I, I, I had found it very difficult, I must admit, over the last 12 months to deal with that from a professional egoic perspective, you know, have, not take it personally. Yeah. Have you had a chance to unpack any of that with anyone or? I have, yep, I have. And the after much soul-searching and root cause analysis, two, two things, two lessons, um, and I think this is important because it, it, in, in it, I think it would apply to any project, but, but certainly projects where you've got a, a, an organisation that maybe has been in BAU for a while and is entering transformation. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one is within a month of the program starting, the original executive of the division, the original sponsor, the person that got it through with us, 
changed roles, left that division to head up a different division. Yep, definitely an alarm bell. Right, so change of sponsor. Now, the, the person that took over was one of the members of that former executive's leadership team, had been engaged throughout the process, but within a month of taking over, so we're now two months into the program, um, made statements like, well, I'm not sure about the benefits. I was not really paying attention in all of those meetings, even though, you know, it's minuted and all of that sort of stuff. Um, I've got a different agenda. Um, our circumstances have changed. You know, a whole stack of messages that the team interpreted as rather than hearing, all right, we've had a change in sponsor and the new sponsor is, is, is telling us he, want, he wants change or he's not sure what happened was a political reaction, which is but we've, but we've been given this money by the board, this is what we're trying to achieve and the team took ownership of the outcomes, mm. not the sponsor. Yeah. And so then what happened was effectively a political fight. So then the program was fighting for its own sake mm. to exist. And it did that for another two months before the realisation that we would have to, and by that stage it was red across the board, right? Schedule yeah. red, outcomes red, dollars red, everything's red, till, you know, you you realise, right, well, now we need a, a, a return to green plan. And mm-hmm. so it wasn't until that point the return to green plan was executed that another two months of wheel spinning before the program got to the point where um, where it had re-agreed its priorities with with the sponsor. And by that stage, it was did look nothing like what it what it did originally. The benefits had all been taken out, so no benefits realization. It went from a transformation project to an application upgrade project. It had changed its spots. Um, you know, so other symptoms, so other symptoms that occurred during that time. Not only did the sponsor change, but the owner, so the senior user was changed. So yeah. the, effectively the person who had done the storytelling, if you like, the business leader who had done all the storytelling to the staff was switched out mm-hmm. um, from a line of business to an operations head. So from someone who's willing to take risks to someone who's risk averse. Yeah, um, that's definitely another alarm bell. Three project managers oh. churned out of the program. Two business senior business analysts churned out of the program. So you're talking about people who were recruited to join a two-year program who within two or three months had seen the writing on the wall and had bailed. And these were senior contracted staff who knew their craft, came on recommendation. As soon as that happened, well, we should have all smelled smoke mm. and, and yelled fire and got yeah. out. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing and my that. challenge, of course, you know, my challenge, of course, was I was asked to then defend the process that we'd gone through to get to where we were because that was then, that then became the the personal issue, became the, well, how did we get here? You know, it's the, how did we end up in this mess? You know, the other work must have been wrong for us to get here rather than just what I, what I think is my lesson now, which is, no, no, 
No, the, the sponsor changed. So at that point, the contract between the program, the people that had developed the strategy, so if you like, you know, the, the agreement between the parties leading up to a project decision mm. became null and void. It's a bit like, you know, when you get divorced, any will that you've written up until the day of your divorce is deemed to be null and void. Right. Yeah. The day the divorce settlement occurs, the day the day the registrar says that's it, marriage over. Any of that stuff is dead. You know things like power of attorney, all of that sort of goes. Projects yeah. need to understand that if they go through a divorce mm-hmm. between themselves and a sponsor, you know they might find they, they might find that they you know that they get to you know find themselves a new sponsor and it's all happy and you know you start a new family. The problem with that is. You've got to you've got to understand what you're going into in that new environment, and you've also got to understand that your agreements that you had before are null and void. That's absolutely and, true. Uh, right, any, great yeah. lesson in my in my book because I'd seen it happen before, but not so extensively, you know. And I think, and in those cases where the the program did fight for its survival, I think it just happened to be lucky enough that the incoming sponsor was amiable and malleable and was willing to listen and take on a bit of a bit of what the program story was you know but but this was not one of those and and it was yeah it was a professional disappointment of mine and will be for a, for a long time I suspect don't don't beat yourself up um I think one of my catch cries is this more to projects and scope budget risks and issues it's all about collaboration relationships and leadership and uh that's an example mm. of what you shared, so thank you for that. Yeah. Um, you talked about, uh, you know, a couple of program and project managers and business analysts coming and going in that program, but when you work with a project manager, how do you know that they're the right person for the project that's going to give you the results that you've kind of set out in that plan? Like what sort of person are they? What do they do? What do they say? <sighs> Yeah, it's interesting, you know. Um, the first program a project manager I ever worked with was a guy called Sunil, an Indian fella um, in Encom. And I think the lesson I took from Sunil is a good project manager understands and appreciates and manage, is a people manager, right? I remember Sunil came up to me one day and he said, you don't look very, you know, you, you, you don't look very good. Right, and I'd been working on a bit of software. It was a tricky problem, and I had a headache, and it was maybe one o'clock in the afternoon, right? And here I was, a graduate trainee software developer, right, working for Sunil. Sunil was this slight, very slight, thin um, Indian man, maybe in his early 50s with the biggest black moustache I've ever seen, um, sparkly eyes, warm guy, but a man of few words, and he said, you don't look very well. And I said, no, I'm not feeling very good. He said to me, do you think you are productive the way you're feeling? And I said, no, I don't think I am. I don't think I'm going to be able to do much. And he said, then why are you here? Mm. And he sent me home. And it was the first time I, I, I thought, yeah, okay, so a good project manager is a good people manager. That was the lesson from Sunil. Another really good project manager I worked with um, was Graham, now I, and I can't remember Graham's last name, but he was our release manager for a while. I don't know if you remember Graham's last name at Transport. And mm. Graham, Graham and I worked on the marine driver licence 
for um, for the maritime division in transport when we integrated that into the licensing system. And Graham, the lesson I learned from Graham was a good project manager is not a subject matter expert. Mm. And in, and indeed, subject matter experts who are project managers in my book are actually hard to deal with, right? They're actually dangerous. They're, they're dangerous. It's not that they don't. They don't. It's not the project manager shouldn't have an opinion, but project managers should understand that their subject matter expertise is managing resources, time, and money, and people. To your point, and and the lesson from Sunil, right? The people are what they manage, um, and that can be both up and down, right? It should never be one or the other, right? Project managers that just manage up are no good. Project managers that just manage down are no good, right? Um, because that, that, that'll put them at adversarial odds with either their customer or their suppliers, being the, the people in their team. Um, but, but they should understand where their strengths do and don't lie. And what was great about Graham was Graham sat down and said to me, one of our first meetings, I know a lot about project management, but I, I know very little about maritime licensing, and I can tell you I know nothing about how you are going to do software development on this project because you'd come from one of the divisions where you'd been doing policy-based project work. And he said, so I'm going to expect you to help me develop the plan, do the estimates, all that sort of stuff. And he said, but once we put that plan in place, my job will be to make sure that we achieve the plan. Wow. And I really appreciated that now. And Graham was highly strung, you know, as, a, as an individual, but he was very clear on the roles and responsibilities, you know, and he articulated it very plainly. You know, it didn't matter to him what the methodology was that I wanted to follow. And as the lead architect on that small project, um, that was really refreshing, right? Okay, good. So, well, this is how this is how the job needs, the work needs to get done. This is how long the work will take. And this is how we'll manage these things. And, he, you know, he'd ask questions about, right, well, how are we going to manage risks and how are we going to manage issues? And, you know, this is what I've done in the past. Does that work for you? Yes, it does. Great, good. Once the plan was in place, oh, was he, you know, was he all over me? Mm. Um, you know, because he kept us to task. That was his job, right? But it wasn't so much so that he he, he was just managing up or managing down. He was very balanced about that, you know. He would always come and ask first. You know, he was a man of fact. So, you know, if he heard something or someone complained or there was a whinge from a business stakeholder about a workshop, he would always come and ask to hear both sides before he made a decision. And mm. So that, to me, is another important skill, and that's a good project manager. And I think the last thing that I learned from Gianni Mason. Uh, our mate Gianni, yes. Gianni, I, one, one of the things Gianni was good at doing was removing roadblocks, right, and getting agreement on compromises. So if you had a risk or issue, and often, as you, as, as you know, Jeanette, often the options aren't great, right? You can keep asking me for options. They're still all not going to be great options <laughs> because of where we're at, whatever the circumstances are, yeah. right? You know, these are the three options. I don't like any of those options, Paul. I'm afraid they're the only three options to choose from, you know? <laughs> yeah. And you can keep asking me, but, you know, I'm probably not going to find a fourth one. Um, you know, um, and sometimes you do, sometimes you need to go and ask somebody else, you know, go and ask an analyst, go and ask a consultant, go and get somebody else for a second opinion, you know. Someone tells you you've got cancer, you don't just go, oh, okay, great, you're probably going to ask someone else to double-check. Yeah. You should. That's good good practice. But if there's only three options and you've got to pick them, 
one of the things Gianni was good was Gianni was good at getting people to understand that they were the options on the table, that, that if they still wanted to achieve the bigger outcomes, that this was not a hill to die on and, the, and, and getting them to make a call. Didn't matter what the call was. He, he wasn't worried about that because, again, he wasn't trying to be the SME, although sometimes he did, but, you know, that's yeah. a of hail. But a project manager that can get resolution when you are off specification and you need to get back on specification through a change request, getting a project manager who can get people to compromise and make a choice on a set of less than desirable options so that the team can move forward means the team are always certain that if they hit a problem and they provide advice, that they'll get a decision because a team that can't get decisions made can't move forward. Absolutely. So they're, the, yeah. they're the three, I'd say they would be the three big, in my experience, the, the three the three big things. And my experience with you, Jeanette, is that you, you exhibit all of those elements at times that we work together. You know, oh, you've done all of those things. You know, thank you. And, and the lessons whether from those from those three particular individuals, and and that's what I look for now. You know, so I I look for people like you who I know exhibit all of those three capabilities. And that's not to say that you know there are areas I know you would be a subject matter expert in, but I also know that you would know that if your job is the project manager, then you know that subject matter expertise might be discussion between you and mm. your own team member who is the SME on that mm. one to one not making unilateral decisions on their behalf, right? That's that's where you then break the trust of a project manager to their resources. The thing that you kind of just picked on that I'm struggling with the architecture talent pool or whatever you want to call it is I have that philosophy similar to what you just talked about is that my architect is my go-to person. Like when if I was building a house and I'm the builder, I don't make decisions about material or changing a wall from brick to timber unless I check with my architect. And mm, the, But when I go into help projects get back on track, I don't see most times at the moment, and I'm just saying probably the last three years, good architects that actually can do the estimates, do the planning, you know, support the project manager. They're kind of they remain domain experts or their solution but not they don't show initiative. So are uh, you kind of seeing a drop in architecture talent because I have in the last three years? Yeah, look, I think this is, you know, this goes to, well, I think this goes to the discussion we are having earlier about what are some of the challenge, systemic challenges in our industry around yeah. skills you know, um, and do people have the fundamentals? Um, and what is the what is the right training ground for an architect and what skills does an architect need? And there's so much research about soft skills in architects and, you know, the role of architects and strategists. And as things have become more service-oriented and cloud and things like that means that, that you have a lot of people who were engineers in a past life who instead of going to the vendors and becoming engineers within the cloud providers, have remained in the end users as service delivery leads or solution architects or some other title. Um, and so there is that, there is that, um, I think there is that situation where you do find 
that you are dealing with architects who are very domain constrained or, um, you know, are not, not as proactive maybe as they should be. Um, and so finding those lead architects, if, if you want to call them that, or, or cross-domain architects is a, is a tricky business. Mm. Yeah. Um, I, know, I know clients who, who struggle with that. Even organisational size, you know, if, if you are rescuing a project in a Westpac or an NAB or, a, you know, defence, mm-hmm. to name a government department, right, or a big university, that's very different to rescuing, you know, uh, sorry, doing architecture in a project there than it would be in a small organisation where you sort of have to do a bit of everything. Yeah. You know? Um, so what you see is people who, and if they shift from one to the other, they go from a big department of defence where there's a team of 100 architects and, you know, and your job is just to architect the one bit. You know, I'm only responsible for network communication architecture for deployment. Yeah. I know nothing about the corporate infrastructure. That's not my job. And suddenly um, you find that that person gets allocated to your project and you're doing corporate network deployment they're only going to be able to respond to the questions because they're not a subject expert. Mm. Um, so I think the challenge there is matching the subject matter expert to a domain. And so mm. I think maybe that's the issue that you're seeing, which is one I think yeah. I'm also seeing, which is they're not subject matter experts. They're not domain experts. They're just, they've just got domain experience. So it's an architecture, a domain architect, but with not the deeper knowledge or the confidence maybe to make a call yeah. um, on okay. some of those. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's really One relevant. of the things that I often, yeah, and so if you reflect on that, the issue, the fundamental issue there, if we, if we say what's, what's the project problem, um, you know, and I'm sure, I'm sure you've got this in your, uh, in your mantra, uh, availability is not a skill set. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing with you because, yep. yes, or Johnny did it last time. He'll be good again this time. No. No, availability is not a skill set. So, and, and people struggle with that and part of that is an employment function. But, you know, Sam's a permanent employee and I need to, I need to keep him busy. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm an IT shop and I have a utilisation target to meet because yeah. I'm partially recovered or I'm fully recovered, right, and that's... And that's a challenge, right? So that's a that's a skills problem, and so that becomes a people management issue about well, okay, it's great that Sam's available, but that Sam has only ever done network architectures for field deployment. He knows nothing about corporate. Mm. So what is our strategy for giving him that support? If you want to use him, that's great, but I'm telling you as the project manager that he's not going to he's missing a capability. Yeah. So so that's where understanding. I think really understanding what does a project need in terms of expertise and getting it becomes really important and recognising that you do have to train people up and they have to have experience and that sort of stuff. And and I was really, again, I think I was lucky. Um, Tim Dargavel, who was the former system architect on trails, once said to me, to be a real architect, you need to have suffered um, the consequences of your own decisions. So you need to look for a project where you as an architect get to make a decision at the start of the project, but you also get to play a role as a developer or an implementation role on the project so that you can suffer the consequences of your own decision. Yes, I remember. I was lucky enough. 
Yeah, I remember Tim and wise words. Yeah, um, lucky enough to lucky enough to do that on the the project I mentioned, the marine licensing project with um, with Graham and I. So I was the architect. I did the design. I then was I then actually played the role of a junior software developer underneath Susan Byrne, um, who's still around there in Queensland. I'm not sure where she's working at the moment, um, but. Uh, and I remember, I remember walking up to Sue one day and going, this doesn't make sense. What idiot decided that this was a good idea? And she looked at me and she said, you idiot. <laughs> and Sue would say and, that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and it was almost like Tim appeared like an angel on my shoulder and said, you know, yeah. suffer the consequences of your own decisions. Yeah. So, yeah. so true. So that's, yeah, so that's, a, that's something I think, again, you know, it's good advice for young architects is... You know, it's all well and good to tell people what to do, but unless you've risen to that height, particularly as technology changes, having done architecture for a little while, it's almost it's almost incumbent on you as a proper professional to then go, right, well, I'm going to go and, and do that. And, again, I think that's also that cross-domain thing, you know. Yeah. Um, go and be a project manager for a little while. So, you know, convince your employer or, or someone or, you know, say to your project manager, you know what, Jeanette, I've never done a schedule. You know, I've never had to deal with that. You're going to take a couple of weeks off. You know, why don't, why don't I run a steer co? Why don't you teach me how to run a schedule? Why don't I have to deal with timesheet approvals? Why don't you give me some of your tasks? So that relieving, I don't think we do that as proactively as we should either, you know, on a project team saying, you know what, if you're the architect, lead architect on this project, project manager goes away for a month for some well-earned leave, well, why don't you have a crack at it? Just, to, you know, sit there and give the project manager grief day in, day out um, at some level. Why don't you have a crack at it? See how easy it is because it's it's not. And so I think that's yeah. a, good arch- a good architect walks in other people's shoes regularly. Yeah, good advice, good advice, Sam. So I know you've got a gorgeous family. Um, you're busy at work. You love bees and honey. So what are you? Get my native bees. <laughs> so, what are your tips for getting the most out of your week? So, how does Sam kind of integrate all the things that are important to him? Um, I think I think my approach has changed over the years. Um, I think when you're young, you can just throw a bit of energy at it. You know, as you get a little bit older, I think you realise you've got to be a little bit more judicious. I will, I will say this, because again, you know, someone I can't recall who told me it originally, but um, you know, it's that old adage of time. It, it, you know, time is precious, right? It's, it's the one commodity that you can never get back, and so you have to really, you have to really understand that when you give it to someone, right, that that they're worthy of it. Right, the endeavour or the people that you give and share your time to have to be worthy because once it's spent, that's it. There's there's no more. Um, and and there's a bit of an oxymoron in that, in that, you know, as my grandfather used to say, yesterday's gone and tomorrow never comes. So the only time you have is now, but at the same time too, that the, the moment you hand that now to someone else, then that, that moment is forever gone. And so I think you do. You, you if you recognise that, then you will treat it like, like you would any other valuable resource. You you plan, you 
you plan for what you would like to use it for. Um, you plan the usage of it in the moment. So you decide, you know, day by day what what you intend to do. And I was always a big fan of Stephen Covey's um, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People and the course that the Franklin Covey Institute, I think, still, still run to this day called What Matters Most, mm. which is very much that style of planning that says, you know, to give yourself a short amount of time at the start of each day to reflect on what it is that you've got to achieve. Um, and, you know, when you realise that there's something that need, you need to do in the future, then, you know, write that down. You know, now how you do that with you write it down on a piece of paper. I used to use a Franklin Covey diary for years. Um, whether you do it on paper or Outlook, I don't think that matters um, so much. But I, but I still, I still do that pretty religiously. Is you know maintain calendars, and if I think of something I need to do, and I don't need to do it now to to take that stress away, I just push that into the future by putting it where it needs to be, and then. You know, and then you review well, what's coming up next month, you know, at the start of the month and what's coming up each day at the start of the day. And once a week, I try and reflect on the week um, and, you know, and take some time to plan out, okay, well, what, what, what am I expecting of myself this week across, you know, my professional life, my family life, my friends, you know, my community. And so just think about it from those sorts of four dimensions. Mm. That's really my only, you know, that's, that's my only thing. But I, I do come back to that, you know, and when I find myself stressed or lost, I'll often go back to some of those early Stephen Covey principles, mm. you know, which, again, are based on, you know, similar principles. There's plenty of planning tools out there like that that you can use if, if you haven't used one. But, you know, I went and spent a week when I was quite young attending that course in, in Queensland. You'll remember, Jeanette, I used to go everywhere with that diary, remember, the leather-bound yeah. thing. Yes. People look at me and go, what's that bloody thing he's carrying around everywhere? For an yeah. IT guy, he carries a lot of paper. Yep. So. And the other person used to have a big diary was Sean Travis. You mentioned him earlier about yep. you and Sean would always walk around with these big, thick, I don't know, diary notebooks, and I've gone, yep, okay. Um, they're supposed to be our technology leaders and, yep. But- <laughs> Here they are with that. Here they are. Yeah, well, there's certainly less paper now. I don't, I don't, I don't use it. Paper. I don't use the. I don't actually use the the, the formal diaries anymore. Yeah, I, uh, but, I, but I follow those same techniques. You know, what's yeah. the task list for today? What's the priority? Yeah, you know, and and if you become procrastinated, then you book time. You book time with yourself to say, right, I'm not. I'm not actually getting to that task, so I'm booking time. Mm. And look, the other thing is just saying no. I'm, you know, giving people a good quality no. Is is okay, and I, and that that's something that I find quite difficult. I'm a real, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll do anything for for anyone because I'm. I think that's you're kind. That's how things come back to you, yeah. You're kind, you know, Sam. But, but you can do that to your detriment. You can say yes too much to people when it when really actually that's not the best thing for you or for them. So a, a good quality no, or and also being willing to say to interruptions. I, I've learnt that over the years. You know, people come up to me and I'm busy and I'm not available, um, I'll often say no. I don't necessarily always answer my phone either, you know, um, because if I'm in a meeting, um, I, I just I just won't answer my phone anymore and, um, you know, things like that. So I've, I've learned to do that over time. Mm. But that's discipline, I think. It, it, and it's also uh, 
the years of experience. So we're not young kids mm. anymore. Um, we've got a few more wrinkles. And <laughs> hey, uh, do you still run a lot? I know you used to love running. I I haven't um, since Sabella, our eleven month old, decided to join us. Um, I haven't run as much as I used to, but I was for many years. Yeah, yeah, and really enjoy it. And we'll get back to it. So one of the things that I'd wanted to do um, for a long time was um, do the city to surf in under 70 minutes and uh, not last year, the year before I did that. So that Congratulations. Was, uh, so it's quite quite good, 14 kilometres in, just over an hour. I was pretty happy with that for a, for a bloke in his mid-40s. Yeah, so, yeah. Look, thank you so much for your time today, Sam. Um, I can talk to you forever. Um, you just inspire me to want to learn more and, and be better me. So thank you. No, no problems at all. It's been, been a pleasure as always, Jeanette. Thank you for listening and I hope you have a few ideas to take action. I would love for you to rate and review the show. I too need feedback to learn. Cheers for now. Remember, a day without laughter is a day wasted.